As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. 
he was really reluctant. He got off my back and he said, I'll let you get up onto all fours and then walk back off the bed. And like he'll instruct me over to the safe, but he just said, do it slowly. And he just kept reiterating he had a gun to my head. So if I made any moves, he'd shoot me. Claire and I had a very long conversation and for a lot of reasons there are bits of it that she isn't comfortable sharing. There are some things from Claire's childhood that she does want you to know for context though before we hear the main story she's here to tell. Claire developed severe anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder in very early childhood. She remembers her first full-blown panic attack happening when she was just six years old. She was living with her mum and three big brothers in a tough neighbourhood in Perth at the time, and with her mum working a lot, their house became the regular hangout spot for the local boys. There were a lot of drugs, a lot of people coming and going, and Claire sometimes hid for hours in her mum's wardrobe because she felt so unsafe. She didn't feel like her brothers could protect her, and she felt guilty about complaining to her mum, who had so much on her plate. So she bottled up her feelings and fears and hid. Several members of Claire's family have faced serious mental health struggles, including an aunt with severe depression whom they cared for in their home until she eventually took her own life. It was, as you can imagine, a deeply unsettling experience. Claire became morbidly fearful of ending up like her aunt, which is very understandable for someone who is already suffering from crippling anxiety. But no one ever had the chance to tell Claire that or to comfort her or help her because she never reached out for help. She did what she always did. She kept her feelings and her fears to herself. So we pick up Claire's story now, back in the house in Perth, and with Claire's earliest experiences with boys. When I was 12, actually, when my the dodgy boys were all around the house and that, um, I had my first experience of one of my middle brother, his friend who wasn't but that good news, um, tried to assault me because it was just me and him left in the house. Um, and he was in mum's room and um, tried to get me over to the bed to play with me, to teach me things, tricks and that. And it was just me and him in the house and I was terrified. Um, and I went and hid in my closet just waiting for him to come and find me for mm. hours and hours until one of my brothers got home. From that point, I was kind of like, uh, I just don't trust men. Mm-hmm. And then when I was 16, I like had my first kiss and like oral sex and like penetration sex all in the same night with the same guy who I was drunk. And then the next day he told me to fuck off and he was actually my youngest brother's enemy from high school and that was his revenge. I had a beautiful relationship from the age of 18 to 20, which was a lovely guy. Um, lovely last, first love. He was just, it was just lovely. Um, but I was still so insecure and damaged and everything still, because I hadn't worked through anything, obviously, at that age. No. So after he broke up with me after two years, which was quite unexpected. What were you was doing when, also? What else was going on? Like, did you finish high school? How were you I, going I finished school? high school. Um, high school was pretty hard. Yeah. When I got to my TE, in my maths TE, I had a massive panic attack, but I was still hiding it at that age. I just sat through with this panic attack and then didn't fill out. I filled out a few questions and maths was my, my strongest subject. So oh. um, that was pretty devastating because um, I was really hoping to get into uni. 
and my mum actually worked at the canteen of the school. So once I got out, I ran across and I was bawling my eyes out and talked to the maths teacher, but they said, because you didn't say anything during the exam, we can't consider it. So kind of flunked out my tea, which was a shame. I eventually got into uni a couple of years later through doing a bridging course and that. Um, But at the time you just think that's your life. You know, you don't, you're not given back then as well. You weren't given as many, the choices, you know, like it was like uni or nothing. So yeah. And also if, you know, if you cock it up, that's it, your life's over. Oh, absolutely. So ridiculous. Yeah. So what did you do at uni? I was doing a major in psychology and criminology, double major. Ah. Yeah. Do you um, find people who study psychology oftentimes have had dramatic childhoods? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I, it's because you want to find out more. Yeah. You know, you want to find out why. And, you know, I wanted to find out why I was different. Um, but I had started that um, and I would have been like 19, 20. And I was loving it and I was doing really well because um, I was so passionate about it. Like I really, I worked really hard and I got good grades and um, that was great. And then I started working at a, I was working at a donut shop um, and then I also started working at a nightclub um, in Northbridge, which I got one of my friends at uni said, oh, just do that. You get to party. It's just extra money for, you know, whatever. And then that's where everything changed because that kind of environment was not something that I was used to, the the seediness of it, because I wasn't really a big clubber before then. And then, you know, I mean, when I walked in for my interview, the guy just looked me up and down. And, you know, I'm standing there with my CV. Like, yeah. <laughs> and he was just like, yeah, you're, you you know, you'll do. Um, and so then, yeah, a lot of male attention started. Um, and my eldest brother actually became a glassy um, at the same time. And so he, I think he took it as a little bit of a, I can look, keep an eye out. Um, which he did. He told me to, who to stay away from and I didn't listen like mm-hmm. every little sister. Um, exactly. So I met one guy who we started hanging out. He was not a nice guy. You know, he really, he was, he was quite openly cheating on me and, you know, like, but I just, I had no self-esteem whatsoever. I thought, you know, I thought any guy attention, giving me attention was good enough. There was so, even my eldest brother was just like, don't go near him, don't go near him. We were at his friend's house with two of his roommates and just him. And I'd actually gone over there just because I was work- he I worked around the corner. So I was like, oh, I'll just go there for the, like, have a couple of drinks and go straight to work the next morning. And when I got there, I hadn't met his roommates before. And they were kind of just talking about guns and about smack and about, and I was like, I, I had no idea what smack was, nothing. But then they brought out the pipe and... They kept saying smack, so I'm still not to this day because as far as I'm concerned, I always thought smack was heroin. Yeah, same. But, yeah. But actually you're right. I have heard people say smack and I thought they meant heroin but they meant ice. Yeah, so yeah, I, I was under the impression it was ice anyway yeah. and I said no quite a few times but they just kept pushing, you know, just saying, look, like we're on it, we're not affected. And I, I didn't know what it was so I didn't know what the effect was and I'm like, well, they're not, they don't seem drunk, they don't seem anything. Um, so I was like, okay, you know, so I tried a bit. I didn't feel like it had much of an effect on me, but I think that's kind of maybe the point of that kind of drug, you, you know, yeah. to get you in. Yeah. Um, so we ended up just going to bed and then later that night, it must, I 
I hadn't really fully gone to sleep because I, I was in that, I guess, that ice. Yeah. That's brain? how it creeps up on you, doesn't it? Because yeah, it's like. Yeah. I couldn't sleep, but I wasn't. I wasn't asleep. I wasn't awake. It was just. But not like buzzing, not zinging. No, no, just no. Just like just not asleep. Nothing. And I guess that can be the appeal because nothing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not always a bad thing. But yeah, so I woke up at about 2 a.m. and um, there was someone under the sheets or under the doona and they were touching my thighs and like hips and things. Was it your boyfriend? No. He was next to me and he was oh. just lying there. Um, with his eyes open though. So I couldn't move. And that's why I started to think, have they given me some kind of tranquilizer or like what was that drug? Um, I could not move. And I mean, I later found out I was probably just paralyzed with fear. But yeah, I, I couldn't do anything. I don't know how long I lay there for, but there was another person in the corner with a video camera. I just saw the little red light. And yeah, it went on. I'm I'm not sure for how long. I just remember looking at the partner at the time, just thinking, why aren't you helping me? You know what's happening? Yeah, and then the person went away. I couldn't see because it was dark. And then the video camera went off. And then I just lay there until I saw the sun peeking through the blinds. And then yeah, in the morning, my partner looked over to me and said what the hell happened? He said, I, I was held down. And I was like, I, there wasn't, I there was no way anyone was holding him down, but that's what he told me. So um, I kind of, I said, I, I don't know, someone was touching me. There was a red light. And he said, yeah, I, you know, I saw all that, but he said someone was holding me down so I couldn't help. So I got up in the morning and my partner said, he said, oh, you know, was it his roommate's? And then I said, I have no idea. I have no idea. I didn't see. So, and I saw it. So I heard him go out to the front, which was outside the room that I was in, and confront one of the roommates and say, you know, what the hell were you doing? What, you know, and this guy just said, wasn't us, wasn't us. And so my partner came back in. He said, um, we've got to go to the police station. And I was like, okay. I was, I was just, I was so confused by it all. I'm like, um, well, for one thing, you've been awake all night. Yeah, and, and this and guy you, didn't drive either, so I had to drive. Oh my god, us down to the so, police. So you're like, you're drug affected. You've been awake all night. This is bizarre, anyway. So yeah. like, you know, you you're tripping me out, telling me the story. I can't yeah. imagine how it felt in your brain. Yeah, and then you're driving, and as always, like I've heard many. It always happens. Um, I felt so dirty. So yeah. first thing I said, I have to have a shower. Oh, well, you shouldn't because, I know, you know, we know I that. Know. But we also know that that's what you want to do so badly. I just, like, went into the shower and yeah. just cried and just. Yeah. No, actually, I didn't even cry. I just bowed my head kind of thing. And just, I just felt like a shell. Um, just felt like nothing was real anymore. So did you go to the police station Yeah, with him? went down to the police this station. And straight away they separated us. Because he had told me to go down there, I was thinking, well, he mustn't be involved, you know, and, and he was being held down apparently, you know. So when they separated us straight away and then so they questioned him, I was in the police station then for about 12 hours and they asked me straight away to, they took me to a female police officer and they said, do you want to call anyone? And mum was in London on holiday at the time and I 
didn't have anyone else. So I just did it on my own and went to King's Ed- King Eddie's, got the forensics done, all that kind of stuff. But because there was no penetration in, and I had the shower and then the forensics went to the house to do a forensic investigation there. They said that there was no forced entry. So it was pretty much the roommates, but because they all lived there, the DNA is everywhere. Going to be everywhere anyway. So they did hold them for 48 hours. But then they let them go. My partner at the time just said still remain that he didn't do anything, um, which was all, yeah, it was all very confusing. But I was never followed up after that either by the police or anything. It was just you're on your own. The night after when I left the police station, um, I went home to mum's and I was just there on my own. And because mum wasn't home for about another two weeks, I messaged a couple of girlfriends And being that age, they just didn't know what to do either, I think. One of them said, you know, I don't know what to say. No. And then the other one said, do you want me to bring you vodka? So, which they just both made me feel worse at the time because I was just like, this is really bad. So my partner was messaging me saying, look, they've let me go. You know, no, I had no part in it, blah, blah, blah. Oh, And how traumatised he was. So (laughs) he was, yeah. Oh, my God. So... I went and picked him up and brought him back to mum's because I just, I didn't have anyone else. I felt so alone and I thought the one person who knows what maybe happened is Mm -hmm. him. Yeah, and also you have to sort of make a decision in your own mind, don't you? Yeah. Do I believe him or not? Like you you kind of have to go all in one way or the other in a moment like that. I wanted to believe him so badly. Yeah. 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 And that's what it was. And I just, I didn't, I didn't, I was too ashamed that I had done this to myself by putting me in that situation and hanging around with these people that I had been warned about and trying a drug that I didn't know anything about. I was mortified what I had done to myself. I mean, my mum had always stressed and stressed and stressed about, you know, keeping safe with men and not getting sexually assaulted. Even if I slept over at my best friend's house when we were kids, you know, there was a a bloody guideline of, you know, don't trust anyone. And then so... I just felt like I'd, I was, I had let her down so, so much. The next day I started to feel like, shit, I should, I need to tell someone. Yeah. Um, so. But can I say, by the way, before you go on, you did tell someone. You went to the police station. Oh, I know. You told the police. Yeah. Like it's not like you didn't tell anyone. Yeah. So, you know, and, and you had an, a witness. Yeah. No, as weird and as they didn't even drug test me. That, well, this like, is it. This is ridiculous. It's not like yeah. it, you ha- actually had a witness to your sexual assault. As weird as the story was, so yeah, don't beat yourself up. You had told yeah the police. Went on MSN Messenger, and my brother was on. So I I messaged him. I just said, "Look, I've been sexually assaulted." And in my head, I was like, "Not a big deal," you know, like, and then. Because that's he, what you've been told too, by the way. Yeah, By yeah. the police. I was like, but I better just tell someone. Yeah. So told him. He said, get over here straight away. He was pretty, he was more um, serious about it than what I expected him to be. So I drove over to his house and he was in tears. He was distraught. But so then he didn't really know, know what to do. So he said, let's go see dad. Dad was staying at my auntie's at the house at the time. Um, so we drove over there. I mean, dad didn't know what to do either. No one really does. No. Um, but he he did think that I had been raped again and he said, 
when I said, oh, I've just, I was sexually assaulted, I was touched, I was filmed, whatever. Mm. Um, he just said, oh, well, it's not the worst that could have happened. Um, and poured me a champagne in true mm. that side of the family style. <laughs> yeah. um, and then sent me home. Sent you home with what? With a sort of try and put it behind you kind of yeah. vibe? Well, I told him, I said, look, I'm going to have to tell mum when she gets back. Right which was a week or two away, I said, can you please be there that night because I just need some support. So he did come over the, you know, and we were just having a cup of tea and the phone rang. Mum, I was pouring like a kettle and dad came over and said, your mum doesn't need this, don't tell her. That just made me so, you know, just I just became so insular and unwell and ashamed. That it made the shame so much worse because I just thought, yeah, okay, well, you, you're not even supporting me here and I need my mum. You know, one the one person who would understand would be my mum. So, yeah, mum got off the phone and we just had a cup of tea and that was it. I didn't tell her for another seven years. That's when the drinking really started, pretty heavy. Um, and just every day, you know, I, I was going to uni to try and um, save face kind of thing. Get but on with your life. I couldn't do it, especially I, the criminology side. We had to do a oh, – the day that it all ended for me was – because I was still going and just sitting there. Just I was zoned out, but we got given an assignment to do an oral presentation on a different type of assault, and I got chosen sexual assault. Oh, God. Yeah, so I just sat there and then I just went – I just died inside a little bit and just went – over just this this dream that I had of, of this career and how much I was loving it it was just done uh so I never went back but I, I kept telling mum that I was going for ages but mum mum knew <laughs> she always knows yes yeah, so our relationship went to tatters as well because I was drinking so much um and I was just I wasn't talking to her I wasn't because I couldn't because I just every word that came out of my mouth felt like a lie from then um and then you're ashamed because you dropped out of uni yeah and- oh it just yeah. I, was, I just felt like the worst person in the world. And, that, you know, I remember one morning she actually said to me in the car, I was so hungover again, and she just said, look, you know, you're so depressed, like what's wrong with you kind of thing. And she was frustrated at me as well. And she said, have you had an abortion? Were you raped? Were you? And when she said the rape, my stomach sunk. And I just went, no. And in that moment I just went, you should have said it, yeah. you know, but I just, I, I almost physically couldn't because I was just that programmed in at that stage to not say the truth. Because of this big lie that was happening, I had to get out of mum's house. And so I was still working at the nightclub. Um, and how, how were your interactions with this boyfriend? Oh, he went away pretty quick. He uh, left town or what, like what happened oh, there? Oh, no, I don't know. He just I kind just, of drifted away. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I think I said drift away. Fuck off. Yeah, yeah. yeah once, once, like, I was not having fun anymore. No. And, you know, it was just, just had no time for it. So I had a, started hanging out with another awful boy. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Um, who was another one at the club. He was the DJ's best mate. He was older, so he was about six years older than me, and he, was, he didn't drink, so he was always there just helping out with the gear and stuff like that, and he was a, just a really nice sensible guy not what I would usually go for you know so it was it was almost like oh I'm you know this is good like good on me (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) I'm doing the right thing finally and so we became 
close, just friends, but we became close. And he would, because I was still going through this phase of really drinking hard and just trying to forget every weekend, he would drive me home and he would just do friend things. And so I eventually ended up telling him about the sexual assault. So then there was that trust there as well, which not that many people knew still. So it was, um, it kind of created a bond with us, which then we did end up dating a bit later on around my 21st birthday. Um, Still so young, God. Yeah. Um, And then, yeah, that's all started fine. And, you know, he had a house and he had, he just had his stuff together. He had a job and it made me look better, Yeah, you know, to my mum because I still was trying to prove myself so much. And, And I was desperate to get out of her house because I couldn't see her and lie every day. It was killing me. So we ended up seeing each other like romantically for about two months. And so I moved into his house then. Um, And that's when once I was kind of settled in then there, it kind of came out that he was smoking weed and things like that. And I was like, okay. I was like, not great, but I was like, it's only weed. And because I had not really been a weed smoker at all, but then he was a daily weed smoker, um, you know, and he's used the thing of I'm, I'm allergic to alcohol. So, you know, that's my thing. And, you know, I was 21. I didn't really care. I was like, okay. So then I started smoking weed every day as well. And then, and things started to not feel very good quite quickly. I would say after a few months, he just started getting aggressive with things like just even road rage and yeah, it wasn't too bad yet, but it would happen a couple of times. It'll outburst, and I'm like, shit, I didn't know what. Yeah, that wasn't great, you know, because I'm especially back then very, very shy and quiet and very insecure. So he was starting to get jealous and uh, possessive and things like that. And I remember waking up one morning, and I could hear music coming from the lounge room, and I went out, and I'm like, kind of just head against the door. He's sitting down. It's, it was a Neo song actually <laughs> because of you. And it's about a girl being your obsession. And he had it on repeat and he'd been there like 12 hours all night crying. And I was just like, okay, this is um, disturbing. But because, and he just, I was like, what are you doing? Because I think you know, maybe we'd had a fight the night before and he was so worried that I was going to leave. And that was his kind of, pull to keep me to stay of how like much he loved me and that, but we had only been out probably maybe a couple months. I'd only just moved in. So it was, it was pretty full on, but I was also like, is this, is that love? Yeah, or is, you know, cool. you, I, yeah. I didn't know what it was. So it was like, it doesn't seem, seems a bit unhinged, but. Yeah, <laughs> you right. Know? But you're still young. So and... I was like, okay, so he must love me that much. Yeah. That's kind of what I thought. It was like, wow, if he's shedding tears for me, like he must really love me. And then from there, yeah, things, just hanging out with our group of friends, they were, you know, my good guy friends and that who he would start thinking that, you know, they were checking me out or that they were being dodgy, which they weren't at all, the most innocent guys in the world. Um, But, you know, he would start going through my phone. He would start really nasty things. Um, What we call coercive control now, isn't it? Completely. And then after a while, it must have been about... Six months, he said to me, he, he was struggling. He was getting more moody and more unhappy. And so he said, oh, I'm just going to grow a couple of weed plants in one of the rooms. And I just, because his moods were getting quite bad at this stage, I thought, 
if it's going to keep him happy, whatever. I said, I don't, I don't want anything to do with it. I said, I hate it. I hate the smell, all that. I mean, I was smoking it at this stage, but I didn't, I was scared of the dealing side. Yeah. You know, um, he started doing that and I had nothing to do with it. Um, I didn't want to. Yeah, but it kept him busy and it kept him happy because he was making money and, you know, it was just weed, so it was fine. And then things started to get worse and worse and worse. I, I was having pretty bad anxiety at this stage, um, obviously. So he would call me crazy. He'd go say that I'm fucked like my family. Oh. Um, I was having panic attacks a lot. Um, and especially because I was having weed. Mm. So the weed would bring on panic attacks. Um, and he would just, I would be shaking on the bed and crying and screaming and and he would just not do anything or just call me crazy. Um, one time I got so scared because he never physically hit me, but the psychological abuse was next level. I locked myself in on site one time because he was bashing down the door so much calling me crazy because I was having panic attack and I just I lay on the tiles for hours just wailing it's like when you used to lock yourself in your mum's cupboards exactly exactly the same mm. um and then eventually I think after a cu- I had nowhere to go you know so I eventually let him in once he had calmed down and he just he used that you know I was like a weak animal on the floor and it was like oh well you now you need me and, you know, he would say, like, well, you know, your mum would be so disappointed if she saw you like this. And 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 he would bring up the assault as well, you know, saying, oh, imagine what, you know, she, she would be so, yeah, ashamed of you if she knew what you were lying about. Later on, it, he started buying me things because he was start making more money, obviously, now because of the drugs. So he would start buying me designer clothes and designer bags and things like that. and which coming from my upbringing, not what I was used to. I I was very uncomfortable about it, but it also was like, he must really love me again, you know, so that kind of mentality. Being so young as well, you don't really know better. And um, plus did your girlfriends and and women at work and stuff say, oh, you're so lucky. 100%. Everyone loved him. Yeah. I mean, because he, like I said, he he was put together. He presents well. Oh, like he did yep. with you when you first met him. And even when I would try and say things to my friends, like, I don't know, like, um, you know, he does do this or that. Okay. And that's like, no, he's so nice. Yep. Like, you're lucky to have him kind of thing. Um, and again, I didn't want to, I didn't want to hassle anyone for help. So it was like, well, I'll just stay. He started dealing other drugs. Um, I don't actually know what, I'm pretty sure it was ecstasy. And then I think eventually it got to ice, but it was, yeah, it was weed and then it was pills. And again, I said, you know, any dealings, they have to be when I'm at work. I said, you know, I just, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Um, I'd always told him, don't you ever bring any ice into this house. You know, he knew my story. He knew how much I hated it. And even when my friends kind of at the time partying and that, they would do ice and I, I would be out of the house. You know, I'm just like, no, no, I just can't can't do it but it started pills and speed and weed was all coming into the house lots of dexies so then he was using those things which was making him more paranoid about everything um he started choosing my clothes and telling me you know exactly what I could wear um so if I if I come out in a skirt that was too short then you know he'd call me a slut and say 
you're asking for it, that kind of attitude. Um, so then he would dress me in what he thought. And then I was losing weight because of one, using drugs and the anxiety. And he thought that was the ploy from me to get attention from men. God, this is chilling. Yeah. Um, you know, if I went to mum kind of started to get an inkling that something wasn't right because I wasn't allowed to even go to family dinners. If I start, If I went to a family dinner on like a Tuesday night or something, I would sit there the whole time just like shaking almost. And would like he be ringing and texting and checking on you? Yeah. Yeah. And then if I, and like my family's so close, just mum and my brothers. So, you know, and I'd just be sitting there. I just couldn't even talk. So I, was, I knew that if I got home after like probably eight, even though I got there at seven probably at eight, then I was, I was going to get it kind of thing. You know, I was, he would, would have abused the crap out of me, told me that I was somewhere else, it, you know. So mum knew, she's like, you'd come, you'd leave. And that was it. And, you know, and I would, I would speed all the way home and I'd still get in shit. So it, it didn't matter what I did. It was like he needed complete control over me and control over my friends, clothes, money, work, everything. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. How did you get out of this? I mean, I don't know how, how you got out of your addictions, which is a whole other conversation, but how did you break out of this situation with this guy? I mean, when he has successfully gained so much control over you, psychologically, but also practically, as you've said a couple of times, I had nowhere else to go. I had nowhere else to go. Yeah. How did you 
get out of this situation? Um, well, he got heavier into the dealing and possibly, I'm, I'm not sure, possibly dealing with bikies or possibly dealing with just a pretty bad people, yeah. um, which I didn't really, yeah, ever want them to be around or anything. But it just seemed like he was getting deeper in it. He kept telling me that he was putting whatever drug money he made so we would go on a holiday. You know, that was the plan. I said, I don't know, I don't, because his money was his money, you know, like, I mean, except for the money he paid for my clothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, no, but that's clever, yeah. Yeah, so I said, no, nah, I don't want to know. And then he said, there's a safe, I've put a safe in the closet um, with the money in it. So, and he kept pushing that I know the code for it. And I kept saying, no. Nothing to do with it. No I don't want to know, you know. Don't want to be accused of stealing it at some exactly, point. Exactly, yeah. because he was that oh paranoid yeah. about everything. Um, because one, I did actually try to get out a couple of times when we were at friends' parties and things. I went up to one friend who was kind of our both our best friend and told him that he was getting paranoid and I think that he was taking too many drugs um, and that I was getting in a bad I, – I was scared. And this friend turned around and said, no, he's just come and told me that you're – the one taking. Yeah. And he looked at me like I was a piece of shit, you know, and, and that was one of my best friends. And, but that's, that's how manipulative this guy was. Like I don't even blame my friend necessarily. You know, it was, it was the situation because it would escalate at parties and things as well because he would be too paranoid. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and I refused to know what this safe code was, but he kept, he kept repeating it. And I was like, so I'd ha- like literally ears in, mm. um, yeah, hands over ears and stuff. And then one night we went out for dinner for Chinese and just a normal night. We got back home. I think it was a Tuesday night. Oh, we just had our usual um, like weed session. We we're just having that and then go to bed. This night in particular, I just went white face, just full panic and like passed out, which what well, didn't usually happen. It was, it was quite strange but I you know had a glass of water went to bed and woke up the next day to a man bashing my head in my partner worked um at a factory in so he started at 4 30 in the morning so he was gone so it was just me and so this guy just I was actually thought I was having a dream and then the banging just got so intense and painful. Oh my God. Um, and, yeah, it, just, it was just non, nonstop bashing. Uh, and I eventually put my arm up to kind of shield my head. Um, so the arm took a lot of it in the end, but it was probably about 10 to 20 big thuds. I was screaming because that was always mum told me, if you ever get in a situation, just scream. Yeah. So I screamed and screamed and then his voice came over me saying, shut the fuck up. Um, and then I remember looking to the right and seeing the roller doors shut and thinking no one's going to hear my screams. Mm. They were asking me, where's the money? Him. I didn't realise there were two, but I could only hear the one on my back. Where's the money? And I'm saying, I don't know. I couldn't even think of the safe at this stage because you'd only just told me about it. So I'm saying, you know, I'm like, there's cars there. There's, you know, take my car, take my mobile, take whatever. Yeah. And he's saying, no, like the money, the money, the money. Jesus. And he said he had a gun to my head. Um, and that's what he'd been bashing me with. So eventually I managed to plead with him because I, I said, I said, there's a safe in the closet. Did you know the number? No, I couldn't think at all. Um, and, I, yeah, I, I pretty quickly regretted not bloody listening. <laughs> I said whatever I thought 
the numbers might be and what, so th- and that's when I found out there was another guy because oh he gosh. was one guy went over to the safe to put these numbers in and then they yelled again saying it's not working, it's not working. Um, so I said, I said the only, like literally my only chance was to do it myself because I, I thought maybe, even though I hadn't even seen the safe before, I thought just maybe give me a chance to put some numbers in. You know, I might, I might get the code right if I'm looking at the grid. And so he said, he was really reluctant, um, but he, he got off my back and he said, I'll let you get up onto all fours and then walk back off the bed. And like he'll instruct me over to the safe, but he just said, do it slowly. Um, and he just kept reiterating he had a gun to my head. So if I made any moves, he'd shoot me. And then I remember when I got up, that was when I saw just mountains of mush all over the bed, which I thought was my brain yeah. at the time. But, yeah, I guess that's just all the stuff in your head. But it was it was a lot. So I thought I was pretty guaranteed to be dead. And then so I slowly walked over with my head down. Um, I was trying so hard to bloody see someone because I just wanted to – I was thinking, I'm like, if I get out of this and, you know, I'll find out who these people are, tell the police. But – I couldn't see anything. I was too paranoid to look up, obviously. Yeah. So I was just, I walked over to the safe. Um, I tried two combinations, didn't work. Third combination, it worked. Oh, my God. Which I just, I don't even know. Like, I even to this day, I would have thought that I might still know those numbers. But, you know, it just, it just worked. And the light went green. And I went to open up the safe door. And that's when I saw my arm was four times the size and green and just been bashed really badly. They t- made me turn around and go face first on the bed and I was kind of like, okay, I was thinking they're going to rape me, they're going to shoot me now. Um, and then all I heard was one of them just get angry because he was like, where's the rest of it? And I was just like, fuck off. God. <laughs> um, I was like, there's nothing. I was like, I don't know. I was like, check every other room. I was like, this is all I know. Before he left. They said, wait on the bed for five minutes. Don't go to the, you know, if you run out of the house to try and get help, there's people watching and they'll shoot you. Don't contact anyone. Don't leave the house. And they'd taken the home phones and that. Thank God they had not seen my mobile down the side of the bed. So that was there. But he said, wait five minutes on the bed. Don't move. So I sat there and I just watched the digital clock go tick. The final thing he said to me was, we're sorry that your boyfriend's a dickhead. So, yeah. So then eventually I crawled out. I saw my injuries. They were really bad. Um, I had a lot of laceration to my face and across my head. And I, I see had you l- have some scars on your face. Yeah. Are they from that attack? Yeah. 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 And I got one on my hairline and then um, lots of damage to my head, my arm and yeah, just a, just a bloody mess, really. So, what do you do? I mean, I'm assuming do you ring your partner, you ring your boyfriend at work. Well, and tell I him? went. I found. I got my my mobile. I went because they'd taken my car keys as well, so I couldn't even get in the car. I went and created like a pillow fort because I didn't know where they were. So yeah. I was like, so I went down there, and I was worried that if they even saw like a light on my phone, that they might come yeah. back or anything. So I messaged my partner, and because there's actually a police station across the road. 
And I, I, I was in my head thinking I just I should just run there, but I was like, they might just shoot me as soon as I walk out of the house. And yeah. there was also a petrol station. And I'm thinking, and then I was like, if I go to the petrol station or go to a neighbor, I'm going to traumatize them. So I kept thinking I don't want to make someone then have nightmares and then you know. So that's how you've been raised. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Keep it all inside. So keep it to myself. I was really paranoid. That was my first thinking: is what if a kid answers? You know, yeah. like that's not fair. Mm. Um. So yeah, I messaged. My partner, I said, we've been robbed. And I think I said, I'm hurt, just come home. He wrote back, what'd they take? Um, and then kept, and I said, don't call. So he called and called and called and called. Uh. <laughs> so then he eventually came back about 20 minutes later, half an hour later. Kind of, was he was semi-shocked at the state of me. I mean, I was head to toe in blood. Um, mm. But still ran straight to see the safe. See the safe, yeah. Check the um, safe. And then he didn't even want to take me to the hospital. Oh, my God. So I had to convince him to drive me. I was like, uh, I've lost a lot of blood. Yeah. Um, the whole way there, my partner was saying, you can't tell the police. And I'm thinking, yes, I can. But, but he was saying, you're going to ruin my life. You're going to, you know, do all this. And, you know, you, you knew, and you know, going into that. And then we got to the hospital. I got straight into ED. Then what do you tell them when they say, what the hell happened to you? You must have looked like you'd been in a car accident or something. Yeah, I said home invasion. Okay. I think I either said home invasion or burglary. Yeah. Same kind of thing. He actually called my mum who was at working across the road from the hospital. So she came pretty quickly. And, yeah, you know, he gave her a big hug and said, I'm so sorry I didn't protect your daughter and all this. And, um, yeah, and then I think my brother came. And so they just, the nurses and that stitched me up. I went x-rays, all that kind of stuff. But the hospital never called the police, which. Wow. That's. Yeah. I, I've i heard that it, you have to be there maybe 12 or 24 hours before the hospital will contact the police. But I would have thought in the state that I was in, someone would have been contacted. Um, but my partner, I think he told everyone that he had contacted the police that's why he pushed and pushed and pushed to get me out. Um, he said pretty much just stitch her up quick and get her out so that the police wouldn't be notified. He told me that I've just got to, he said, I'll sort out the police, like I'll contact them, but I just need to go home and clean up what was going to put him hmm. in the cop's Trouble, eyes. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, so then I went back to mum's um, and she looked after me for a few days and everything. But my partner was coming back to the house and saying that the police were investigating, that they had forensics there and doing all that. Later found out that that wasn't happening at all. He had actually hired a skip in to get rid of the bloody mattress to take like fingerprints off everything. Mm. So then I was at mum's for probably... Might have been about five days after it and he was kind of coming in and out telling me just to not say anything, to shut up. He's got it under control. He's sorting it out with the police. Even though I had still not been questioned, I had not nothing. Um, so then, and mum was obviously getting pretty sus at this stage going, why haven't we been contacted with the police? Um, and then my partner was getting really aggressive with my mum then saying like, oh. why don't you trust me to handle it? You know, like, I'm an adult, it's my house, all this. And mum's saying, well, my daughter almost died. But about five days later, things got bad as in mum 
was really pushing now, saying what is the police officer's name and all that. Mm. And then so my partner really kind of cracked it then and just went, okay, I'm taking Claire. So he took me back to his parents' house, so they were away at the time, um, just to kind of shut me up and make sure I didn't say anything. He made someone impersonate a police officer and call my mum to try and get her off the case. Which, yeah, my middle brother actually was also, he's a a keen eye. So he he, um, called that officer back and was like, this is... Because he's had dealings. Yeah, yeah. So he was like, okay, um, this is bullshit. Wow. So, and then after that, I I demanded, I don't know where I suddenly got some strength from, but I told my partner just drop me home. I said, I'm telling mum everything. Back to mum's. Yeah. And so he did. He had the, you know, I said, come in with me. Like, you know, this is an opportunity if you want to actually come clean. He didn't. Was he? And yeah, yeah. It was probably those five days at home with her, do you think? Was yeah. That, was that circuit breaker? Yeah. That yeah. you needed? Uh, yeah, 100%. And having my brother there yeah. and them not hating me or and, you know, seeing, I guess, the end of it. So I went back and my middle brother was there and mum and just sat down. I just told them everything. They were just amazing. And then my the youngest brother came over as well. He was pretty pissed off. Yeah. <laughs> just that I had lied. Um, yeah. Not so much about anything, not about the home invasion, but more so lied about the relationship being so unhealthy and not yeah. coming to him before that. My oldest brother was in London at the time. And yeah, dad had come down the day, I think he was working up north at the time. He had come down the day of the home invasion, but then went back to work. Mm. But then wasn't going to come down for this bit, even though I was saying, really need your dad to come to the police station. Mm. So he eventually came down. Um, and so we went to the police station. I said, you know, I still had a cast on my arm, pretty bandaged up and all that. Mm. And it was so shaky. And we had said, you can, we're going to the cops you should go as well on your own account. He said he did, I think, but um, I'm not sure. But I went to Manning Police Station, the lady at the desk. I said, you know, I was, I just said it so quietly because I was so embarrassed. And, you know, I said, oh, I was victim of a home invasion. She said, oh, when? I said, oh, about five days ago. And she said, well, what do you think we're going to do about it now? You know, you should come then. <laughs> I'm like, well, it's a bit more complicated yeah. than that. Yeah, so I, I got taken in and they then sent forensics to his house, took my statement, photos and all that. But, yeah, yet again, I didn't ever hear anything, even though my partner got nothing, not even for destroying the evidence, not for being part of it really, I, you know, And but the police never arrested him, never anything. Um, I called and called the police the days following, like begging for any kind of information, just in tears, and they just kept saying, we'll only give my partner the information because it's his house. His house. And yet you were assaulted so badly. So badly. so badly. Yeah. Like the doctor said that I shouldn't have lived with the amount of trauma to my head. God. That was the end of it with, in regards to the police, they never contacted me again to see if I was even okay. Um, my, the, the my ex-partner got nothing at all. I mean, he ended up getting arrested years later for lots of offences. So Did went he? to yeah, went to jail then. But Did he? Yes. He went to jail. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I was like, I wish it was because of what happened to me in a way. But he, no, he did go for about six or eight years. 
shit. Yeah. So he obviously didn't learn a lesson. <laughs> um, and, you know, he did stalk me after it for a while. He didn't let go for a little while, which was pretty terrifying because I was still in a pretty scary spot, I guess, mentally. Yeah, definitely. And also because, as I said earlier, he sounds like he has the potential to really oh, hurt yep. somebody. Yep. Yep. Yeah, he had no bounds. Really. Nah. So. At this stage, so when you've, you've finished up with him and all that and you're healing physically, yeah. were you still drinking and all of that? Like how did you get, get from there to here? How did, you, how did you stop drinking? How did you rehabilitate your life? Yeah, I did, I did stop a lot of things actually yeah, after, after that. that. Um, I, yeah, moved back to mum's. I did go straight into trauma counselling. You did? Yeah. Straight yeah. away, straight away. So even at the hospital, I, I got paired up with the just, yeah, my angel really. Yeah, <laughs> she, yeah. she, um, I went in there just for the home invasion, but then quite quickly we talked about childhood and all that. And it was like, oh, just having someone to talk about it all with. Because yeah. it wasn't just about what had happened. It had been what had led up to that and the sexual assault and the trauma in childhood and it was all of it. So mm. then... I think when I started, I did exposure therapy um, where you desensitize yourself to uh, like what's happened. So the home invasion, I had to just write it in real detail and then just go over it and over it and over it and picture it over and over. Um, mm. It was awful, but it really worked in allowing me to be able to talk about it. To stop you avoiding it. Yeah. But the PTSD lasted a very long time. Yeah, like the nightmares and th- that sleep paralysis came every night from then on. So I would see figures in the room and couldn't move though, couldn't move, but I'd be wide awake. So I'd, my heart would just be out of my chest, I'm sweating. And that, that happened every night for years and everything else that comes, <laughs> comes with it, shopping centres were now, you know, not a place I could go, crowds. I really stuck to the counselling. I really stuck to all the therapies that I needed to do. And just started hanging out with the right people, the friends that had been there all along and my brothers. And then about six months later, I went to Europe and UK because I was like my power move. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I went and did that and that just showed me that the world's a bigger, better place than what I was living. And you've managed to stay close as a family. It's pretty beautiful, Absolutely. Isn't it? Yeah, no, we're, we're really, really close. And I did, I was in a relationship with someone, with a beautiful guy for 10 years. We mm. were two weeks from getting married, but then COVID and then it didn't happen. Oh, <laughs> God. Um, so you actually broke up. We did, yeah, which it was, that was also because I'd gone into hospital in 2018. I had a full mental breakdown. Yeah, so I was in there for about three months at the start of 2018, and then I went back 2018 at the end. I went back in 2019 for a few months and then back in 2020 for three months. But then I've always paired that. I got paired up with the most amazing psychiatrist and the most amazing psychotherapist that I both met at the hospital, um, and they've changed my life. They're still my mental health team. They're your and, team, Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah, they're just the best, and they – because, you know, I've, I've been through so many psychologists and psychiatrists and it just proves that just keep going until you get someone who you fit with. Yeah. No, but I mean, but going into there as well, I mean, I finally met like-minded people. Of course. You know, and it was like, oh. It's not just you. Yeah, yeah, because you, you feel very much alone in trauma. You've, you know, I know that 
sometimes it's just the most isolating feeling. But when you meet someone else who's gone, it doesn't matter what trauma they've gone through, but yeah. it, to have that connection is, um, yeah, it's just really important. Thank you to our guest today, Claire, who is now in a healthy and loving relationship. If you feel as though you need to talk to someone about issues raised in this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.